1980, um, there was a, a sporting event considered to be the greatest sporting event of the 20th century, and it was the, the Miracle on Ice. You guys remember the Miracle on Ice? If you don't, just a quick reminder, the Soviet Union was the overwhelmingly dominant ice hockey team for decades. I think they won four consecutive gold medals at the Olympics in ice hockey from 64 uh, to um, this particular event. And they had a team that was incredibly good. In fact, several of the players were kind of universally acknowledged to be the best in the world in their position. And against them was the United States, a team that was on average 21 years old. It was the youngest team the United States had ever fielded in the sport and the youngest team playing ice hockey that year in the Olympics. And there was supposed to be no chance whatsoever that the U.S. could pull off a win over the Soviets. And yet, in the third period, we scored the go-ahead goal. It was four to three. And uh, in the last several minutes of the last period, we, we held on, right? We held on for the win. And um, I just want to play for you the really famous, like, last 30 seconds of that game. Okay, they're a little bit excited. Uh, do you believe in miracles, right, is the call. Uh, an unbelievable moment in sports. Um, is that a miracle? No, it's not. I'm sorry. I, I'm really happy they won. Um, so I want to talk a little bit today about what makes something a miracle and do we believe in them, okay? And I want to begin by making a distinction between the miraculous and the highly improbable, it is highly improbable that a team of 21-year-old or younger hockey players were going to beat one of the greatest hockey teams of all time, right? Highly improbable, not impossible. Uh, and, and so when we talk about the miraculous today, uh, I want to think about those things that are beyond improbable, right? Those things which are an exception to the normal way the world works. Um, Richard Pertiel, who's a philosopher of a professor of philosophy at Western Washington University defines a miracle as an event brought about by the power of God that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. A miracle is when God makes an exception to the ordinary course of nature to reveal that He has acted in history. So, in that definition, right? Do you believe in miracles? 
Jesus keeps bringing this up. It's a little uncomfortable, actually, um, because, well, it makes some sense. I mean, it makes sense that he would say, hey, believe in all these amazing things that I've done. Uh, By the way, it's not just in this passage in the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John where Jesus says, believe in me because of the works that I've done, the amazing things I've done. He says the exact same thing in chapter 5 and in chapter 10 and really throughout the Gospels. Uh, the, the amazing things he does are the reason we should believe him. And that kind of makes some sense, right? If somebody shows up and starts saying extraordinary things and making claims to be God and forgive sins and that he's going to raise again from the dead, you need some proof in the pudding, right? So that makes sense that he would expect us uh, to believe those miracles and let them be proof to his story. Um, the problem is, um, that's a little uncomfortable, I think, for us as modern people, right? We, we don't love the idea of the miraculous. It makes us feel kind of uncertain. Uh, and, and yet Jesus keeps coming back to it. Right? Uh, and really, the whole story of Scripture keeps coming back to these miraculous things that God did, right? If there's no parting of the Red Sea, there's absolutely no reason to obey or believe the Ten Commandments. If there's no resurrection of Christ, there's no reason to believe that we're going to be raised from the dead either. So I want to think this morning a little bit about um, this idea of the miraculous and maybe why we struggle with it and um, how, uh, in fact, we can trust these extraordinary things that Scripture claims um, were true. So, uh, I want to think particularly about three big objections that I often hear to the idea of miracles, and then um, maybe how we as people of faith respond to those objections. Uh, and, And the first thing I hear very often is that miracles are a violation of the laws of nature. Um, This goes all the way back to David Hume, who was a preeminent philosopher in England in the 1700s. In 1748, he wrote an essay called On Miracles and really became the basis of a lot of the sort of secular objection toward the idea of miracles happening at all. Uh, And in it, he says, quote, a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature and as firm and unalterable experience has established these laws, the proof against a miracle from the very nature of the fact is as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. Okay, so really he's saying two things. He's saying uh, that there's these laws of nature that prove miracles can't happen, and he's also saying we have all this experience that shows they don't. So uh, just to unpack that a little bit, um, let's talk about scientific laws. Um, we all throw that term around a lot, right, the, the, a, a law of science, uh, and, and we can probably name some. We could talk about the law of gravity, which isn't really a law, but okay, um, or the law of conservation of matter, right? We can, we can name some of those things. What do we mean when we talk about a scientific law? It's not a rule that someone has to follow, right? It's not like there's something immoral about not falling at 9.8 meters per second squared when you you jump out of a plane, um, rather it's an observation, right? Scientific laws are observations. We've said, hey, we observe that this is how the world works, and we can reproduce this experience again and again and again, right? So we can reproduce the result that everything on earth falls at 9.8 meters per second squared. However, um, there is a real difference between saying that things do ordinarily happen this way 
saying that they must happen this way. Um, by the way, um, even our observations are imperfect. Um, we had this idea called the conservation of matter for a long time, which was the idea that physical stuff never goes away. And then, unfortunately, we realized that was wrong, and we discovered um, nuclear fission and nuclear fusion, and that matter can become energy, right? And all of a sudden, now we have a new law, conservation of matter and energy. So we, we, our observations can improve over time and change. Um, but the key idea of a miracle is that it is, as we just said, uh, an, a moment where the normal order of things are suspended, Right? Where, where God simply says, hey, I know I normally do things this way. Today, I'm going to do it a different way. Uh, and, and the problem with that is um, science is based on the observation of reproducible results. By definition, miracles can't be that. Right? We can't make them happen. We can't reproduce them. Um, it, it's, a, it's an outside of the normal order of things kind of moment. Uh, and that means... We're not breaking any laws here. Uh, we're simply acting in a different way. Um, by the way, um, one of my professors in, in seminary really disliked the word miracle, and I, I like the word miracle just fine, but he said it, it sounds like you're breaking rules, and he really liked the idea of, of the way God ordinarily works and the way God sometimes works. And I like this a little bit as well. He said ordinarily um, God structures the world in the ways that we are accustomed to. Ordinarily, if you drop an apple, it'll fall at 9.8 meters per second squared, but sometimes not. Right? Sometimes God chooses to work a different way, and sometimes um, when a man walks on water, he doesn't sink beneath the waves. Um, not a breaking of rule, just the way that God decided to work that day. Um, but Here's the problem. Even though, sure, miracles by definition are not breaking science rules, um, nevertheless, we have all this experience that says if a million people try to walk on water, a million people are going to sink beneath the waves. So how is it that we can believe that this one guy didn't? Right? Uh, and Rachel McKee uh, is helpful for this. Rachel makes a distinction between weighing and summing evidence. She says, the problem with the way we think about miracles is often that we sum evidence, right? A million people walked in the water, a million people sank beneath the waves, therefore that's always going to happen. She said, unfortunately, sometimes you have to weigh evidence differently. So there's a um, Life magazine article from quite a number of years ago that reported that um, on March 5th, 1950, all 15 people scheduled to attend a rehearsal of a church choir in Beatrice, Nebraska were late for practice. And everyone had a different reason. A car wouldn't start. A radio program wasn't over. Ironing wasn't finished. A conversation dragged on, etc. It was fortunate that none arrived on schedule at 7.15 p.m. because the church was destroyed by an explosion at 7.25 p.m. The choir members wondered whether their mutual delays were an act of God. It was estimated there was a one in a million chance that all 15 would be late on the same evening. Now, by our definition, that's not a miracle. Right? That's an improbability, not an impossibility. But even an improbability um, suggests that we can't just sum the evidence. Yeah, and a million times, this only happens once. So, not very common. But we have eyewitnesses, and we have people that we trust, and we have people that have no reason to lie, and we have their family members who all are saying it happened, and so we weigh that evidence differently. Right? We say, hey, this is really a believable account, 
And so even though most of my experience is this, uh, I, I can't just rule this out. Uh, I, a simple ex- example from science, um, I, I'm a big fan of the Big Bang because I think it so beautifully fits into the story of Scripture, but um, the idea of the Big Bang is not reducible or producible, right? You can't test it to see if it's true. Um, there are some evidence that suggests it's right, and we can weigh that evidence and say we're convinced by it, but every day I wake up and there's not a Big Bang that day, right? And so um, the sum of the evidence says one thing. There is some evidence I'm weighing that says a different and I have to choose, right? And so this is how miracles work for us. Um, Yes, absolutely. Ordinarily, I don't see people walking on water. Um, But when I get um, credible accounts, I have to weigh that evidence and decide if it can outweigh the sum of my experience. Okay, uh, so the the first objection uh, to miracles is that they break the natural laws of things. Uh, the, the second is that ancient people were just gullible, right? That ancient people would just believe anything you ever told them. And, and we've kind of all heard this before and, and maybe thought this before, that, you know, people in the ancient world were superstitious. And, and therefore, any kind of myth or mythology that came along could get some credence in their mind. Um, by the way, I, I, I think actually this idea of, of, of the word gullible is helpful as we think about it. Um, I, I read a fun thing this week. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, um, but uh, I've got a slide. If you, if you say the word gullible really slowly, it actually sounds like oranges. You want to try that? Okay. Just say it really slow. Gullible. Yeah, no. Come on, people. It doesn't sound like oranges. Okay. Um, my point just being that um, the gullible thing isn't an old school thing, right? Um, you can take that away. Um, that we, um, yeah, absolutely, we can be taken in by stuff. But this idea that people of the ancient world were uniquely foolish in this regard doesn't hold water, right? And, and, and in fact, as we go back and even um, uh, read the stories of Scripture, we hear again and again about how many people doubt the miracles that they're seeing. Uh, there's a story of N.T. Wright who's a Christian author and scholar, debating with a skeptic about the idea of the resurrection of Jesus. And the skeptic said, um, we know the body of Jesus is rotting in the tomb. And N.T. Wright said, well, how do you know that? And the skeptic said, well, we have 200 years of scientific research and evidence to prove that dead people don't rise again. And N.T. Wright said, really? You think that it was just 200 years ago that we figured out that dead people don't come back to life? You think they didn't know that 300, 400, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago? This isn't a new revelation, right? People have always known that dead people don't come back to life. That's why the, the central claim of Christianity is so risky, right? It's so, it's so challenging because we don't come and say, hey, let me tell you about this great teacher who had good moral instruction. We come and say, hey, let me tell you about this guy who lived 2,000 years ago and then died and is still alive today. And that was as hard for the ancient people to believe as it is for us to believe. It was even hard for the disciples to believe, right? We have accounts in Scripture of of disciples after the resurrection looking at Jesus and saying, "Eh, I'm not so sure. Why? He sounds like Jesus, and he looks like Jesus, and he's doing what Jesus said he was going to do, but I've never met anybody who came back from the dead before, right? I'm I'm not certain about this. 
Um, by the way, there's a variation on this theme of sort of the gullibility of ancient people, um, which is that ancient people um, saw what they thought were miracles, but were actually just natural phenomena. And, and um, I, I've heard this in a variety of ways. Actually, uh, last week we were talking about the, the story of the, of the manna from heaven. And um, people have been in the scientific world uh, trying to figure out how to reproduce manna for a long time. And there have been a lot of different ideas of what the manna might have been other than just something miraculous. And the, the current popular idea uh, is that it was um, bug lice. Uh, so I'm just going to read this. Um, the, if you go to the Sinai Peninsula, um, according to this author, uh, the Bedouin who still live there gather this substance and bake it into bread, which they still call manna. The flakes themselves come from plant lice that feed on the local tamarisk trees. Because the sap is poor in nitrogen, the bugs have a lot to eat, have to eat a lot of it in order to live. They excrete the extra and a yellowish white flake or ball of juice from the tree that is rich in carbohydrates and sugars. It decays quickly and attracts ants, so a daily portion is the most anyone gathers. Does that sound familiar? Uh, and I read those stories and I think, okay, sure, that's certainly possible right? It's certainly possible that something that the ancient people perceived as supernatural was just a natural occurrence they didn't yet understand. But as a person of faith, um, I read those stories and I say, yeah, but, yeah, but, um, really? Plant lice for two million people for 40 years? And I think there is this desire, even in the church sometimes, to say, boy, I can make this more palatable if I can ground some of these miraculous things in more earthly explanations. I, I remember <clears throat> when I was a kid, my next-door neighbor came and talked to me about, um, I don't know how we got on this topic, we were talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know, the destruction of the cities. And he said, Jim, I just read this thing that said, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was actually a natural occurrence, that, that there were these sulfur pits that just naturally occur in that region that could destroy cities. And he said, it's really helped me a lot because now I can, I can believe uh, what I read in the Bible. And I thought, yeah, I don't, even as a kid, I don't think you do, right? I think what you're telling me is um, you want to believe those cities were destroyed, but not that God was involved. And isn't that the message the Scriptures are really trying to communicate, Right? That, that God um, was divinely involved in making extraordinary things happen. And if those things happened, but they happened randomly and someone later imagined that God did it, there's a pretty enormous difference. And so I, I get the desire to explain things away with natural reasoning, but I got to tell you, there is no scientific explanation for a man raising to life after three days of being dead of a man who can be touched and who can eat food, but who can pass through walls, and who after 40 days ascends on a cloud with angels to heaven. There's no science to explain that. There's no natural explanation. And the choice of the ancient people was as difficult as the choice is for us today. Did God enter the world and do these amazing things or not? <clears throat> the third objection I hear 
um, maybe as much or more than the others, is, okay, sure, so maybe God did miracles in the ancient world and they weren't gullible, they really happened, or, or maybe um, it wasn't a breaking of the laws of nature, but it was just the way that God chose to work in that moment and that time. But why don't we see those miracles today? Right? Hear this all the time. Okay, sure, miracles are great. Why don't we see them today? And, and I would come back um, with two big ideas. Uh, the, the first is um, there are miracles and then there are miracles. And as we read the story of Scripture, um, it can feel like there's just crazy things happening all the time. Right? I mean, you can read the Bible and you can come away thinking that uh, in, in the biblical times, every other day there was a miracle in the street corner. Not the case, right? You're, you're reading 1,500 years of history and <clears throat> a few short books, and they're recording every one of these extraordinary moments, which tells you that for most people, they never saw a miracle, right? And most of the extraordinary things that happen in Scripture happen around two pivotal events, the Exodus and the story of Jesus. And those events are pivotal because those are the moments where God inbreaks His kingdom on earth and establishes a new covenant and a new way of life with a people that He's going to use to spread His story to the rest of the world. And so, yeah, if you read the stories of Exodus and the stories of Jesus, the most important stories of Scripture, God is everywhere. Because those are the moments, um, they're what I would call the faith-establishing miracles for the whole people of God, which reveals to us the extraordinary reality that there is a God who loves and claims us and wants relationship with us. Those stories are unique. They're not really unique. They're, they're unique. And, and they are, in fact, retold and retold and retold for generations. And, and the power in them is not necessarily that we experienced them, um, but that we share in the story of those who did. On Wednesday nights, we are doing the Passover Seder meal with, with our adults and our kids. It's been a lot of fun. And one of the interesting themes that comes up over and over again as we celebrate this observance of the Passover feast that the Jewish people have been doing for thousands of years is how much first-person language there is. Remember, this is a miracle that happened 3,500 years ago. And yet when we get together to celebrate it, we say that we thank God that we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And because of His mighty hand, He brought us out of slavery. And if He had not done so, then we and our children after us might still be slaves to the pharaohs of Egypt. It's been a long time since the Exodus. Right? We're still writing ourselves into the story. And for those sort of faith-establishing miracles, um, it's not necessary that we experience them ourselves, but that we find ourselves in the world that God has created by inbreaking His kingdom into our world. But then there are also what I call faith-building miracles, and these are in Scripture as well. And, and faith-building miracles aren't always for the whole people of God. They're sometimes just for um, an individual or a small community. And, and they are answered prayers, and they are healings, and they are conversions, and they are insight, and they are prophecy. And I got to tell you, um, I have lost track of how many of these have happened uh, in my life and in the lives of people around me. I've lost track of how many times people have said to me, hey, we went to the doctors, I was healed, 
They don't know why. Medical science can't explain it, but we've been praying. Praise God. I've lost track of how many times people have said to me, hey, Jim, um, you're going to think I'm crazy, but last week um, I, I heard the voice of Jesus out loud in my living room. Jim, you're going to think I'm crazy, um, but uh, I, I, I had an encounter with Jesus where I, I saw or heard from Jesus like right in the real world. And I usually say, well, are you crazy? No, okay. Um, yeah, those miracles continue. And, and we don't all get them, right? God's not a, a, a soda machine where we get to put the money in and, and eject the drink. Right? We don't get to control miracles. They don't happen 100% of the time. But Jesus says, my Father is still working, and I am also working. And in this passage in the Gospel of John, he says, if you ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. So I think part of the challenge for us as people of faith is to say, God, um, we want to see you show up in miraculous ways in our lives. And we know we're not going to get everything we ever ask for, but God, we believe that you are still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Jesus, and Peter, and Mary, who shows up and does extraordinary things. And the miraculous intervention of you and our world is the reason we believe in the story of Christ, in the story of the kingdom of God. And so I believe for us this week, as we, um, as we dig into our Bibles, as we go about our lives, as we reflect on the presence of God, we are called to do what Jesus tells us to do, to believe because of the works he has done, the faith establishing miracles for the whole people of God, and believe because of the works he's done, the faith building miracles in our church community And believe because of your God moments, maybe not miraculous ones, um, but the ordinary work of a God who is always more involved in our world and our lives than we can ever imagine. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we come to you today recognizing uh, that you are more present than we can realize, uh, that you are present in the improbable and in the ordinary and in the impossible And we pray, Lord, simply that you would make your presence known to us, that we would have the privilege of finding ourselves in the story that you are telling through Scripture, and that we might be a conduit for the world to come to know that you are a God who still loves and acts and cares for this world and works redemption in our lives in ordinary and extraordinary and in miraculous ways today. All this we pray in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.